Hey folks, for this Around the World episode, we're taking another trip down memory lane and visiting an old Geek Cinema Society episode that's, gosh, probably four or five years old now, at least at this point, Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, This was going to be a Future Classics episode. Obviously, we had some tech issues, as you heard on the last episode of the podcast, but we're going to go ahead and fill in a terrific recording if you've never heard it or if it's been four or five years. It's worth a re-listen. Uh, we had a wonderful guest on this program as well. And I think Howl's Moving Castle, again, like I said last week, is the kind of film that Nicole, whose turn it was to pick this uh, new uh, future classics, she would have chosen this kind of film. She loves Howl's Moving Castle. And I spoke with her after the fact, and she, she agrees. Howl's Moving Castle, future classic pick for sure, even though it's technically outside of the range. So enjoy this blast from the past. And join us next episode where we are going to be back to the movie go round. And it is a around the world pick. That is a film that has to be international. It's my pick this go around. And we are going to be watching Shin Godzilla. So check that out. It's going to be a great time. We'll see you for that. But without further ado, Howl's Moving Castle. Hello, my name is Brett Stewart. I'm Nicole Davis. And I'm David Luzader. And you're listening to the Geek Cinema Society. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Geek Cinema Society, the show where every single week we delve deep into a film that is considered pivotal to geek culture. Now, we reached out to you, the listeners, to help us determine and rank those films. We had a big, giant list. People went. They voted. Films went up and down. It was really fascinating. And we were able to pick hundreds of films that you, the listeners, think are important to geeks, nerds, whatever you want to call us. And every single week, our guest has not seen that week's film until that week. Our guest this week is Norman Benford. He is the co-host of Back to the Future, the podcast, which is currently on hiatus, but you can find that on all other podcasting outlets. He's also a restorer of vintage 1980s toys that he collects. He's a massive Star Wars fan, a Back to the Future fan, a Transformers fan, and a Weird Al fan. How are you doing, Norman? Thanks for being with us. I'm doing just fine. I think... uh You've done a pretty good job running down my my geek resume for everybody. So uh, I'm looking forward to discussing this film with you guys. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So just to give people a brief rundown, though, what is Back to the Future, the podcast, if they want to go back and listen to it, even though it is on hiatus? Back to the Future, the podcast was started by a friend of mine named Brad Gilmore, and I joined him as co-host, uh, kind of moving into the second and the third season. Uh, it started out just as a retrospective on the the films themselves, but then we did a lot of podcasting surrounding the uh, future year, the 30th anniversary of the release of the film. Uh, we we touched on some of the comic books. Uh, uh, Brad had several interesting guests in the first season, people who were actually uh, involved with the production of the film. Uh, we had Kasim Games on Gaines. He's an author. He talked about his uh, book, We Don't Need Roads. Uh, Unfortunately, Back to the Future is kind of finite in its content and uh, right. kind of petered out there after a while. Yeah, well, it sounds like you have a fascinating back catalog, though. And the nice thing about a show like that is that it is evergreen. People can go back and listen to that, even if it wasn't when you recorded it, and hopefully glean something really interesting from it. No, I, I, w- I would love for people to check it out. I We are still picking up new listeners, and it's nice to, to see that. Uh, it's out there for people to enjoy. It was a labor of love. Very cool. Well, this show is a labor of love as well, and every single week, our guest hasn't seen that week's film. You are our guest this week, and the film that you had never seen before, that all four of us watched, was Howl's Moving Castle from 2004. A young girl is forced to toil in her parents' hat shop, and her only joy is in her occasional meeting with a handsome stranger, Howl the Wizard. When a witch sees her happiness, she curses her to become old in a jealous rage. Ashamed and afraid, she flees to Howl's magic-moving castle. Will Howl truly see her for who she is? 
Uh, so, Nicole, this is a film I know you personally love very much. It's also a film that was uh, 107 out of 500 on our list. Uh, so clearly it is a very significant title. I should also preface that it is an anime film. It's a Japanese film. So what is significant about it? Okay. Well, from the moment a huge, odd collage of building parts and metal hulls comes looming out of the mist on giant chicken feet, Howl's Moving Castle is magic. Uh, the c- movie is currently the third highest grossing anime film worldwide. Uh, it's moderately based on a novel by Diana Wynne-Jones. Howl's Moving Castle is a European-styled steampunk wizardry seen through a Japanese filter. That's directed by Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli. Um, it's an anti-war tale. It's immersed in the wonder of magic. It's gently romantic, and it features a sometimes elderly female lead who saves both herself and the male lead, And it features the male lead who breaks free of his arrested development to become a responsible man. And this film, uh, obviously, you mentioned it's an anti-war film. Again, it came out in 2004. So I think there's something to be said about the director of this film probably looking at what was happening uh, in the U.S. uh, in that time. Is to my understanding what I learned about it. He was very upset about the Japanese involvement in the Iraq War. Hmm. Very interesting. So... Norman, this is a film you had never seen before. Uh, I had seen it, but a long, long, long time ago, so I didn't remember any parts of it. Broadly, before we really dig into it, is this a film that you enjoyed, or did you not enjoy it? Why or why not? I did enjoy it. I do not think I would watch it again. Um, I enjoyed I enjoyed the artistry of it. I liked kind of the, the abstraction of the, the castle itself. Um, I couldn't get over Billy Crystal. <laughs> yes, he 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 dragged me out of it every time. Uh, I, I, I loved I, him. <laughs> I found that to be a, a piece of questionable casting because he's arguably the most high-profile voice in the whole film, and it just uh, that that didn't work for me. Overall, I enjoyed the film. I thought the story was kind of meandering and confusing. Um. I don't know. I I do not think I would watch it again, but I would recommend it to people who are animation fans. Very cool. And of course, you know, this is one thing that's cool about Geek Cinema is that this is a film that you probably wouldn't have watched unless you had to for this show. Uh, myself included. I don't sit down and watch anime. Uh, so it's always good to expand your horizons on that. You mentioned that Billy Crystal was probably, you know, the most high profile voice in the English version of this film. Uh, and that segues immediately into one of the topics I did want to talk about. Uh, but that is, you know, uh, that there's also you know, Christian Bale is Howell. Uh, Emily yep. Mortimer is, is young Sophie. Uh, and uh, what's his name from the Hunger Games is really young Markle. <laughs> Josh uh, Hutcherson. And yeah. uh, Jenna Malone from the last three Hunger Games uh, plays uh, Sophie's sister in the beginning of the film. Right. That was amazing to me. But uh, before we dig deep into that sort of thing, I do want to go around the table and talk about previous perspectives of of this film. As I mentioned, Nicole, this is one you enjoy. Uh, Tell us a little bit why this film is important to you. This this movie, I for a different um, reason this summer, I made a list of my top 10 movies and that was not specified as to whether i thought they were the best movies or just my favorite movies or what have you and howl's moving castle was on that list for me um i was trying to put my finger on it why why i love this movie and i do love this movie this 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 could quite well be my labyrinth brett this is (laughs) She brought um, it up. She brought it up. But sorry, continue. <laughs> sorry, uh, let me take the take the chart there. Yeah. Um. But I'm not sure. It's the immersiveness of the world building. I mean, this feels like these feel like real places to me. Um, and they're so beautifully rendered. It's the character development uh it's the 
fantastic vocal performance from it's Jean Simmons who plays the older Sophie. Uh, and she was a very famous actress in the forties, fifties, early sixties. Um, probably most notably in Spartacus, uh, as the love interest there. And I just found her performance. So just, charming you know she's that feisty old lady that i hope to be one day um and how the way the way he's done by christian bale is you know i gotta say it's it's kind of sexy you know it's the (laughs) the voice he's still i think he was bringing in the batman voice a little bit just a little bit husky um sure definitely when he was the you know as the bird creature He's trying to get her to go away, and I'm and I realize now that I'm rambling. But yes, I acknowledge that there are problems with the story, especially toward the end, where it sort of becomes unclear why people are doing what they're doing, uh, how it all ties together. But this is one where I turn on the movie, I sit down, and I am sucked in and carried away, and just loving every minute of it until it wraps up. That's awesome. And David, what about you? Had you seen this film before? Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a huge anime fan, but I do enjoy uh, anime. I definitely was around the time this movie came out. Um, I've always loved the studio, uh, <laughs> studio Ghibli, Ghibli. I'm still not sure of the pronunciation, uh, the stuff that comes out of that studio, especially, uh, Miyazaki, um, you know, a few years before this, the movie Spirited Away came out, and uh, that is sort of, you know, as Nicole, uh, that is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, so this film, when it came out, I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters. I was very excited to see it, and I've seen it a few times since then. It definitely has a, has a magical quality to it that uh, is is just fun to jump into and and you know enjoy for two hours. Yeah, I would actually, I'd agree. Uh, this was a film that, again, I had seen it many, many years ago, did not remember it, and I just thought it was lovely. I had a really wonderful time with this film. Uh, one thing I did want to ask is that Studio Ghibli is the, is that the studio that did the English dub? No, the English dub was actually done um, at Pixar. Oh, okay. So, is, So I guess my question would be, and again, I don't know much about anime but i learned a little bit about this when in our second episode with akira which is there's always the original cut which is in japanese and then there tends to be uh, a cut with subtitles and then there tends to be at least one or two cuts in you know english or whatever other language they translated into and Mm -hmm. i know with with akira there was a lot of heated debate over what is the best dub over uh should i watch it with subtitles or should i watch it uh in english i know some people who are very diehard about anime who feel that they should watch it with subtitles with the original voices um of the production and this film almost seems different to me in that regard maybe it's just because they're such high profile acts but it's i don't know i I don't know if i would enjoy this movie as much without them uh, they just give such interesting performances for me. Is is yeah. there a is there a subtitled version I could watch if I wanted to? Oh, yes. Yeah, is, yeah. Ha, has anyone the ever seen DVD that? Is that there I have, that? you can you can do either the English track or you can do the Japanese track with English subtitles. Uh, the English subtitles follow the script of the English language track almost exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I did try listening to it in Japanese with the subtitles on. And I, you know, everybody did, everyone does a perfectly good job, but I just, I actually prefer the performances of the, uh, the English language actors. Studio, Studio Ghibli films are kind of unique in the way that, uh, uh, the, you know, the fact that their English dubs are not as looked down upon uh, by <laughs> anime fans uh, as much as most dubs, um, even for, you know, years and years where dubs were considered just trash by a lot of people in that community. But these, yeah, these films have always been, had a lot of love and care in their translation and bringing them over into the States. So they usually get a very high quality 
in the uh, in the dubbing and the translation. Now, someone it, said Pixar, but are you sure it's not Disney? Because I'm looking at it, and it says Disney scoured Hollywood for top-level talent to overdub their vast catalog of Studio Ghibli titles. Well, so, I believe it was, you know, it's it's all under the Disney umbrella, uh-huh. um, but I believe it was the tra- language tracks were recorded at Pixar Studios. I know that Pete Docter was the uh, the voice director in the room. At the time, one of the special features on the DVD is showing them. Oh yeah, you're uh, right. When doing Disney English recording, so they're actually all in a big room. It's the voice actor, it's Pete Doctor. I think there's a another director, and then there's the two, um, the two English writers there. So if they have a problem fitting the script into the mouth movements, they were able to actually change it on the fly to make sure it would fit and still have the same meaning. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm reading an article right now from nerdsofcolor.org where they said when Disney acquired the distribution rights, uh, Pixar chief John Lasseter ensured that the films would each be meticulously restored and sought, uh, sorry, meticulously restored and sought out all star talent to re-record the soundtracks to the films that already had American releases. Some of the actors brought into the Disney Ghibli fold included nerd friendly names such as Patrick Stewart. Uh, Mark Hamill, uh, Michael Keaton, really cool names. Uh, fascinating. So, uh, real quick on on the uh, Christian Bale thing, he actually signed on after seeing Spirited Away. He just signed on like anything you want to put me in that Studio Ghibli, I'm in. He didn't expect to land the title role of the next movie. He was just very enamored by that film that he wanted to be a part of what was going on. Uh, Norman, did you like Bale in this role? Because I know, I know you said at the top of the show that Crystal didn't do much for you, but what about some of the other English actors that were in this? I, I did not mind Christian Bale. And just interestingly enough, when you were talking about uh, subtitles and dubs, the version of the movie I watched was an English dub with English subtitles that did not match the dub word for word. Oh, yeah. They were always kind of in the neighborhood of saying the same thing, mm-hmm. but... Uh, Never it was a single sentence, a word for word match. So that was kind of entertaining. Yeah. See, that's what I find so fascinating. Sorry, go ahead, Brett. Oh, no, I was just going to say that this seems to happen a lot because in the anime we have seen and the anime I've heard from with my friends, uh, because of that inherent language barrier, there seems to be a lot of always just weird dubs and weird different versions of subtitles and certain people prefer one subset of them over another. I just find that really interesting because you don't see that in certain other aspects of film. And other genres. Well, I know. In, I'm I'm pretty sure that in some cases they tweak the subtitles just to to fit the screen, and so you have time to read them before like the next person jumps in and starts talking. Mm. So gotcha. it doesn't always match the the script. Gotcha. Mm. But you were saying Norman about Christian Bale. Um, honestly, he did not strike me as particularly effective or ineffective because. Like uh, you referred to him earlier as kind of the the main role or the I, he's he's the male lead. He's definitely the male lead of this. Mm-hmm. But this this is not that character's movie. No, he, no. I think he's he's very much the uh, a supporting character in this movie. Uh, I was much more interested in the voice work done by the protagonist, and I thought she was great. And I liked how. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but when later in the film, when she would be kind of shifting back and forth between very old and sort of old, her voice would change a little bit. Or am I just misremembering that? No, that's no, true. You're right. uh, Emily Mortimer would step in when she started to you know, show glimpses of being younger, which I thought was completely fascinating. Yeah, I, I like that. Like, I thought that was a great touch that uh, that Sophie's voice would kind of go up and down in tenor as she aged and de-aged back and forth. Uh, she, she was great. Uh, Christian Bale, I mean, not not invisible because he was just voice talent, but he was just kind of there for me. And his character was in many ways so overwhelmingly absurd. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't give a lot of credence to what he was saying. I actually did not recognize it was Christian Bale until I think the first scene I recognized it. And this probably says something to to 
Bale's voice was when she follows him through that like tunnel and then he's the big giant bird or whatever and she's mm-hmm. like no I can save you and he's like really gruff uh, and I was like oh that's Batman <laughs> and but anytime before that in the film his voice went over my head I recognized Billy Crystal I recognized Mortimer but I didn't recognize him until he went in Batman mode and I'm like oh yeah it's Batman uh, and then I immediately knew it was him but yeah. uh, to talk about what Norman just brought up which I think is a great talking point for this film is the fluctuation in Sophie's appearance from becoming old. Like there's a point in the film where she starts to slowly become older and younger and older and younger. And uh, I thought it had something to do with, it seemed, it seemed to me that like whenever she felt this like love and like youthful vitality from Howell, that is when she would kind of revert back and then something would happen. For example, like a gun, like, like when they go into the big giant meadow where his, where his, uh, his little cottage was and then the gunships in the horizon and all of a sudden they both look at it and now she's an old woman again. It was almost like that gunship kind of broke that piece, which reverted her back to being old again. Uh, and Nicole is someone who, you know, has seen this film, I'm sure many times. What is your take on that? I, tend to look at it as I think she when she forgets herself when she is completely unselfconscious um, that's when the curse sort of fades into the background and she appears and sounds younger Um, and it's when she's reminded of her old life or um, how she believes she's supposed to be that's when she appears and act the most old and infirm. Do you think that we as the viewers are the only people that can see that? Because that's the impression I was under, because there are times when she reverts to a younger self, or at least her facial features do and her voice does. And Markle's interacting with her and he doesn't seem to notice that. Oh, that's a good question. I, I had not thought of it that way. Yeah. I thought how could pick up whenever, like I thought there were a couple scenes where they showed how looking at her, like when she was sleeping and she yeah. would appear to be young to him. Mm-hmm. I think Howell could see it. I, I'm wondering if Markle couldn't uh, because there were times when she was younger and, and Markle was interacting with her exactly the same, which was really interesting to me because I was like, is this an artistic device to show us what is going on with her emotions and her psyche uh, visually? And that was very interesting to me. Uh, I think also like, she seemed to revert to her young state every time she was sleeping. So that was a time when potentially she could be at peace and she wasn't thinking like she wouldn't have negative thoughts running through her head when she was asleep. So she reverted to her natural age. That was my initial impression of that. Sure. David, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, this is one of the places where the story kind of fails. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for there's there's a lot of stuff in the story uh having to do with magic that you kind of have to fill in yourself and you're able to do so fairly easily, I feel. Uh, but this one, this is one of those places where, you know, even, even a one-off line of dialogue really kind of would have, uh, would, would have helped clear things up. Cause it definitely did seem to be that as she got more confident and comfortable in her emotions, uh, when she was assertive, uh, with herself is when the curse weakened or broke, um, but there's also times where it seemed a little bit arbitrary and yeah, like while, while she was sleeping, was that Howell could only see that or was that how she actually was? It's, it's definitely something on this uh, watch through. Cause I was watching with a little more of a critical eye that uh, I, I, I found myself questioning more of it, but I think if someone was just watching it without really focusing on that, that it would, you know, it would just be a part of the story and you would just go with it. Yeah, I found it very, it was a fascinating aspect of the film to me. And I now realize that this was actually in our talking points. And I did not realize that. (laughs) I thought you were being smooth, Brett. No, I wasn't being smooth. Uh, But to move into some of our other talking points, one from David is the castle as a metaphor for Howl. And that's, that's intriguing. I never thought of that. Can you give us a little bit of what you're thinking about with that? Uh, so this is actually something, and I'm not the first person to think of this. I should have said I was and just seemed really smart. Uh, but looking at some other analyses of the film, uh, some people kind of point this out, that uh, when 
we first see the castle, it's this big disjointed mess that you're kind of in awe of. It's, it's very fascinating, uh, but it's also like dark and dingy inside um, that, you know, you know, it itself is, is sort of how it's this, it's this great thing, but it's also messy and it's got a lot of problems and it's kind of just barely holding itself together. You've got Calcifer as the heart quite literally in a number of ways calcifer is the heart of the home and the heart of howell uh and then markle is you know we find out that howell is a child still essentially and markle is that that inner child uh running around the house um that that they're stuck with and you know as as the, the castle gets clean and uh when you know he begins to let more people into his heart he the castle sort of expands on the inside uh, like the changes of it are very real to the changes going on inside of him. I did not pick up on Markle being the representation of him as a child. Neither um, did I. And w- wouldn't Markle kind of cease to exist then whenever Howell got his heart back? Well, Shouldn't I he- don't think it's a, I don't think it's a literal yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's the standard for his, for his inner child. If the, if the castle right. is the body, Markle is the inner child. Inside of right. Plus, you know, Markle is also studying to become a wizard. Much like he's him. practicing his own magic. So, I love, love this giant fake beard. And I, yes, I, I, I want to take the high road, but I'm just going to go ahead and say there, there's a really, really cheap joke there somewhere about Markle being his beard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. I yeah, I really enjoyed now, Markle now. as a little character. <laughs> I thought the Japanese are much more comfortable with androgyny than uh, than I think we are in the West. Generally speaking, we're getting there. We're getting there, but <laughs> they in their in their media, um, you know, the ideal seems to be the ideal physical type, kind of both for men and women, is you know, willowy, um, big eyed, and you know, willing to do whatever, whatever with your hair. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, if I'm being entirely honest, one of the things that always throws me off of anime is that, that is that art style. That art style has never done anything for me. I, I don't, I don't need to see spiky hair everywhere. Um, it's just <laughs> something that's just personally never appealed to me. And it's almost, it's kind of thrown me from not only Japanese, uh, film, but and, and television and whatnot. But I had a lot of trouble, you know, getting into Final Fantasy games, which I know David's playing fifteen right now, I believe, right? <laughs> Correct. Uh, and I had trouble, but I had trouble getting into those just because the art style was a little bit, a little bit off for me. I didn't, I just didn't do anything for me. And uh, similarly, I, you know, I've had trouble with uh, Japanese like MMOs and stuff like that because of that. But with this film. I don't know what it is about this film, but the art style of this film is just so lovely to me. There is just so much color and so much intensity to everything going around from when they're in the city to when they're in these big giant meadows and these mountains, uh, right, you know, on the docks by the, by the, uh, the, the sea to when Howl is flying around in bird form, essentially in like the hell of warfare. All of it was just gorgeous to me. It was just a film that, this is the first film in a while. I love all we, the, I like a lot of the films we do on Geek Cinema, and I love a lot of them too. But this is one of the first film in in a couple of weeks that I've really just locked onto from the moment from start to finish. It, it just drew me in, uh, much yes. to what Nicole said at the top of the program. Uh, and I have to give it huge credit for that because as someone like myself who just has trouble getting into that art style and that method of storytelling, I it, it's almost like it's in a class unto itself in that regard hmm. uh, so I really enjoyed that part of it um, but to move on some of our other uh, talking points in the book it is very explicit that Sophie is a witch is it too subtle in the movie and does this re- re- uh, revelation add anything this was something from David and in our slack Nicole shared with us a uh, a document from the real adventurer where they compare the book and the film, because keep in mind, the book was published in 1986, uh, quite some time before the film in 2004. Uh, and I was reading through this document, and one of the things when they compare Sophie is that Sophie is supposed to be 
uh, a witch. She does have strong magical ability. And not only is this, I don't, I don't even think it's just subtle in the film. I think they omit it entirely. Uh, there's not yeah, one not point sure with it that, that I really. She has any magic in the film, or at least not. If she, if she has any, it's sort of a product of her having been in the castle and it's very subtle, or rather it's, you know, or it could just be her own strength of will. You know, yeah. and love for the love for the other characters that allows her to do certain things. Yeah, and the reason that I think even it might show up in the film itself is is her dealings with Calcifer, uh, especially with him eating her hair. Yeah, the ponytail. Yeah, becoming incredibly powerful off of that. Hmm. If right. if anything, I I think like her as a a witch, or it feels like any magic that she. Uh, exhibits in the movie is magic that has been imbued upon her and mm. is not something that kind of resides within her. That's my take on it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And as, as Nicole sort of mentioned, my take on it was always was she was the magic of purity. She was just love and happiness, <laughs> you know, uh, because one thing about her character is she's very Dorothy, Dorothy esque in this regard, where just all these, band of misfits just slowly start accumulating behind her everything from turnip head to uh to the dog uh to the woman who ultimately turned her into an old woman like she but like she saves this woman and befriends her and takes care of her uh which is which is a whole weird part of the story there and so for me when she is able to start fixing the world and start putting all things back together for howl it's almost just this this power this power of her purity as a person. Uh, that said, had I known she was magical and maybe that was inside the film, that could have been really interesting too. Uh, has anyone read the book? I have, but it was a long time ago. I haven't yet, but this watching made me really want to check it out. Because hmm, I would be interested. I'd be very interested to see whether or not her character is as emotionally compelling with her being magical versus her not being magical. Uh, Cause it almost seems to me that it wouldn't be. It almost seems to me that the fact that she doesn't have as much control of what's happening around her and that she is kind of this innocent bystander in a world of, in a world of intensity, right? She's thrown into the middle of this world that has war and conflict and howl and these moving castles and these big grand things down from being just a shop girl in a hat shop. Uh, it almost seems to me that if she was magical and if she had the ability to be magical, some of that innocence uh, would be lost for me. Well, I think this is something that's pretty common to Miyazaki movies is that the, you know, especially with her befriending the Witch of the Waste when the Witch of the Waste is is transformed and, you know, Sophie comes to feel sorry for her and then eventually they develop this oddly friendly relationship um but something that's common in Miyazaki movies is that the the bad guys are not all bad and the good guys are not all good they're always at least a little bit of complexity to everybody that's interesting and to segue that immediately into another one of our talking points from you Nicole you ask whether or not this is the most you know, quote unquote, Western of Miyazaki's films. And in that sense, what does it add and what does it take away? And I have not seen his other films, but this is definitely as someone who, you know, as I said, indulges almost primarily in Western culture. Uh, this film did more for me than most anime. So I think that might speak to it a little bit. Uh, what else has he done? Uh. <laughs> There's a lo- it's a long list. Is that like asking uh, what Spielberg has done? Like, is I don't know. Is he like a big deal in no, anime? No, he's not quite that prolific. It takes time to make these, you know, beautifully rendered animated movies. But uh, Castle in the Sky, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, Princess Mononoke, Ponyo, My Neighbor Totoro, uh, uh, okay. uh, Lupin the Third. That's his, that was his first one. What's the new one that came out? The Wind Rises. Oh, The Wind Rises. That was that was fantastic. Um, Spirited Away, and we've done a lot of uh, stuff that people really care about. A lot. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, oh, Kiki's Delivery Service. That's the one I'm forgetting. Yeah, that's a big one as well. Huh. Okay. Um, 
And and have you ever seen any of these other films, Norman? Or are you kind of green to anime like I am? I have seen Spirited Away, but much like you with this, it was years ago, and it didn't leave much of an impression on me other than, oh, that that was a movie that I enjoyed. Right. Okay, so I have a... Well, that's number one, by the way, of the uh, most financially successful anime films is Spirited Away. Huh. Very cool. Spirited... I kind of remember... I'm going to... Good podcasting here. You're going to hear my keyboard while I Google Spirited Away. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a new movie that's film? out that's moving up right now. Actually, it just passed Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle used to be second. Uh, I but totally there's something remember called Spirited Your Away. Name in English. It's like a body switching thing, male and female. And um, that's most of what I know about it. I've actually, I'm avoiding reading up too much about it because I'd like to see it eventually, but. I've seen Spirited Away. I remember this. Uh, oh, it's also Studio Ghibli. All right, looks like they're yes. They're is, doing is well Spirited Away on your list. I would be surprised if it's not. I'm sure it is somewhere. That's a really good question. Um, I'll check while we're doing some moment to this. But yeah, I, I would imagine it is. Uh, and this is a question I wanted to ask, and I'm hoping someone can give me some sort of answer on this because I know this goes down a whole different rabbit hole. But I think it ties into whether or not things are appeal to West- appeal to Westerners, whether they don't. One thing I've always noticed with anime, and I mean this genuinely, is that a lot of anime characters, and I was reading a couple articles on this, so I know I'm not the only one who has noticed this, this film included. For some reason, Japanese animators don't make their characters overtly Japanese. And that's always been interesting to me. They tend to be whiter characters. They tend to be almost more European looking, uh, like Howell, for example. Um, why is that? Well, th- this film, I think if we're talking about this film, it takes place in, uh, you know, in a European country. Um, some of the more popular ones do take place in European countries. Uh, but yeah, even the ones that take place in Japan, they don't like, they don't seem to necessarily look Japanese. I guess it's just the style that developed. And I think it's it's definitely the style. Um, to I think I think it was an offshoot of just making the a development in uh, making the faces more expressive. Um, they tended to make the eyes and the mouths really big. I mean, you'll see, you know, especially like if you look at 1980s uh, animation, you know, things like things like uh, Dragon Ball Z and that kind of thing with the spiky hair and the, you know, the giant eyes, and the giant mouths and just like crazy out of proportion. But this is bringing it into a more realistic level. But I know... I'm I'm trying to be very careful not to speak for a culture that's not my own. Of course, um, but yeah. From what I've read, it's not perceived. Japanese people do not perceive a lot of these characters as Western. They perceive them as Japanese, even though the features may appear to us to be more Western-looking. Mm, yeah, uh, that's not how it's viewed in Japan. In fact, I'm actually reading an article right now in front of me that says they're not necessarily white features; they're more of neutral features, uh, yeah, in a way with a round eye, you know. But they said there's actually quite a bit of of features that are traditionally more Asian, uh, such as smaller smaller noses and uh, an eye shape and that sort of thing. So I, maybe there is some. It seems to me like perhaps. I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter. Like, I could care less. Uh, it, it really doesn't matter. But I just find it fascinating because since these are characters who are sometimes Japanese characters created by Japanese animators, I think it's always fascinating to look at a way a culture interprets themselves in animated form. Uh, and, and you know, obviously, Westerners do their own weird stuff. Uh, so I, I just found that interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, but I mean, you can see that in... Uh, the recent controversy about the live action version of ghost in the shell. Was that, uh, um, was that Scargo? Was that, um, was that yeah, Scar-Jo? where they, they cast Scarlett Johansson in the role of, uh, a woman who is, has an explicitly Japanese name. Um, in the, in the anime, I would not say that she necessarily looks Japanese or European. It is sort of a, a neutral, mm-hmm 
middle ground. Um, but that character is very much, you know, owned as Japanese. Um, yeah. So it was. And, but also on the other side of that, I think you kind of have to look at the culture that's making the film because you have, they're making the Japanese uh, are making a live action version of um, Full Metal Alchemist, which takes place in a very German uh, country. And, yes. you know, that's, that's, it's the entirely cast there, you know, uh, by Japanese actors, but it's being made for a Japanese audience in that case. Right. They did the same with Attack on Titan. Mm-hmm. Hey, David, so. you mentioned that this takes place in a European country. Where is it supposed to take place? Uh, fictional Europe. I know the, the uh, city. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm not sure. They never explicitly say. I know the city is based on uh, France. or uh, Not France, but... Uh, yeah, no, Miyazaki went to visit Alsace in France to uh, get visual inspiration for the buildings at the countryside. Hmm, very interesting, because it almost seems to me that the... Uh, the war imagery in particular is very evocative of World War II. Uh, you know, the planes and the dogfights and the carriers and, and all that sort of stuff uh, really does seem like World War II, even though he might be comment- you know, commentating on Western wars of the early 2000s. Uh, yeah. And that actually ties us... Oh, sorry, go ahead, David. Oh, no, I was just going to... Um... I was just going to say, I really loved some of those plane designs, though, like the one with the weird flapping arms that it makes no sense practically, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they're so cool. Actually, they were very ornithopters. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and that ties directly into a talking point that we actually have from David, which is uh, did Suleiman. I thought it was Sullivan. Uh, it's it's Suleiman. They say it. Okay. Uh, Did the Suleiman start this war to get at Howell? Uh, And that's a really good question because at the end of this, at the end of this uh, movie, uh, you know, the dog like goes up to like, I'm going to, this is my like very layman explanation of what happens. The dog goes up to the crystal orb, wags its tail. And then the, and then the lady's like, Oh, war's over. Howell found love. And I'm like, what? Is that what this war was about? Uh, Someone explain this to me. I don't think that's what the, the war is about, and I think trying to explain this is is diving down an endless rabbit hole that includes other questions like why, whenever Hal gets upset, does he turn into a pus monster and summon <laughs> the forces of evil to start destroying his house? It, it, yeah, it's a fair question. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, nominally the the war, I believe the war starts the countries whatever they are, are hostile toward each other to begin with. But then one of the princes goes missing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kingdom. So that's what I think it's when she realizes, Oh, the prince is coming back who still hops around on a stick. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. At the end. Must've gotten a new stick. I thought the stick got destroyed when it was, when he was stopping the platform. It's muscle memory. He's not going to be able to get rid of that easily. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah i i actually love turnipet he's one of my he's one of my favorite characters in this movie he doesn't have to say anything for me to find him lovable but uh yeah that's a fascinating aspect of this film i think the war because it is such a centerpiece of it and it reminded me of not labyrinth but it did remind me of actually warcraft and the story that warcraft attempted to tell with their most recent film or their only film which was um the idea that the magical people you know quote unquote magical uh which in warcraft and in the movie is is the the archwizard medivh they are bound to the crown in some capacity and they are bound to fulfill that call of duty. They can go out and do whatever the hell they want and they can go live in their tower and, and experiment and really do whatever they want. But when the moment comes that they are supposed to aid their king, their queen, their country, whatever, they are supposed to uh, return to the fold and do so. And that's a big plot element in Warcraft. Uh, with Medivh. And I actually kind of saw that again with Howell, and similarly to those two characters, uh, Howell is very reluctant to do that, uh, and also similarly to those two characters, Howell has kind of forces of darkness around him that are that are causing him to have internal strife, that are, co- that are overtaking him in some ways. And I see that a lot in Medivh. I don't know if anyone else saw Warcraft, <laughs> uh, but I saw a parallel there. 
A lot of people in China saw it. I know that. Yeah, no <laughs> a whole kidding. A lot of people in China saw it. Hopefully, enough people saw it because I want another one. But oh, I, it, it's they are going to make another one. That that movie made money hand over fist internationally. Oh, uh, not enough. Not enough. Really? The international market's not as forgiving. They actually take a much bigger cut. They do. The yeah, Western Westerners might only make upwards to twenty five, thirty percent of what a film grosses uh, in a in a Chinese market. Yeah. Uh, and it that was, said, that said, they might understand that and understand maybe we need to approach this in a certain way to make it more profitable for us overseas and make things that'll appeal to them. I digress, but it made, I, worldwide it made under five hundred million, which is not good. Yeah, but it was. I loved it. I thought it was a wonderful film. But to not bring that, you know, to not get too bogged down in that film, I think the the character arcs are similar between Medivh and between uh, between Howell because these are these are wizards that are bound to their to their country in some capacity and both of them are experiencing kind of this internal strife with the demons within them that we see with howl and never never really gets resolved aside from just love um which is cool that's great i'm really happy that howl found love but uh a lot of things for me with him are still left kind of interpretable um, and, and to be to be fair on that, I don't think it was necessarily just love. Uh, I think it was a little bit of him maturing. Uh, that Sophie brought that that maturation to him, and and is allowing him to grow up. Yeah, yeah, and it's always good when you don't, you know do not take out your heart and put it in a fireplace and have it run your life, and then <laughs> not put it back in. Um, so that was definitely a, a pretty good catalyst for him being fixed at the end too i think uh but that's actually that's actually a question i had is um billy crystal what's the character's name a uh, search of the sea calcifer calcifer is calcifer actually is it just a interpretation of what his heart is or is it like the soul of his heart or is he actually his heart because he's not actually his heart he like flies away at the end so well he's like the custodian of his heart okay that makes sense. Right, because even when the fi- fire still goes out, there's kind of that little mound there, which is a, you know, presumably is hard. Right. Huh. So. Fascinating. I actually would be interested. I, I found myself thinking earlier that I would not want to read this book, but I'm second guessing myself on that because I'm wondering if it might flesh out some of the, the things in the plot or lack thereof that left me a little frustrated and puzzled. Uh, you know, the whole movie, it's like, oh, if, if Calcifer goes goes out, then Hal's going to die, except not really. That's That happened, and he didn't. And I, I'm just wondering if the book kind of gives a, a better reason for some of these contradictions or kind of jumps in the plot other than, well, it, it it's just happening. Go with it because it looks really cool, which well, for the record think. it did. Yeah, yeah, and one, one would think that the novel would expand upon that pretty significantly. Uh, but to go back to David's original question, did Suleiman start this war to get at Howell? Uh, what do you guys think? Norman, what do you think? I, 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 I don't have an answer for you for that. I, <laughs> I, and, and again, this is, I'm kind of just jumping back to my, my last point. I don't think the plot in this is cohesive enough to definitively answer that question. That's, that's my take on it. What about you, Nicole? Um, I don't know. I think she's been, I think she's happy to take advantage of the war to try to bring him in, um, as he is bound by his oath to do, but I don't think she started it just to get to him. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Because I guess, I mean, I, I, my apologies. I can't remember who made this point earlier. But it isn't just like the dog and the crystal orb sees that they've found love. It's also that the prince is now back and he's going to go stop the war. Uh, so there is that as well. Um, yeah, that's and the fact I always I, that's another part of this film I find very interesting. It's just at the end, like, oh, yeah, turnip heads, the prince who can who can end this war. I'm like, oh, OK, that's that's convenient. That's good. I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad Sophie's going around giving loving, you know, like meaningful kisses to like fire and everybody and turnips and yeah she should have kissed kissed the dog and see what happened 
Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that like Prince and the Frog type thing going on all all across the board. Uh, the music in this film was something that Nicole alerted me to prior to even watching it, being a, you know, a music geek and a musician and someone who does a music podcast. And oh my god, is the is the music in this film gorgeous? I I don't know where to start. I this is a film that if I was in the record shop and I saw and I saw a a soundtrack or a score version of it i would most certainly pick it up i thought it was stunning it captured it very very well yeah i th- I, I find it lush and beautiful um joe hisaishi is the composer and he does almost all the studio ghibli movies um as well as a, a very prolific career outside of it i like how he <laughs> Sorry, I just find that very interesting. I like that he has, he actually has a Japanese name, and for his stage name, essentially, he just changed the first name to Joe. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting to me. Okay, but, <laughs> but outside of that, what a talent. Uh, seriously, I have, I, you know, I'm looking at the stuff he has done, uh, which is essentially almost all anime by the looks of it. Uh, the most recent thing being Tale, the Tale of the Princess Ka- uh, Kajuya. Um, oh, the tale of Princess Kaguya. Kaguya, right? Yeah, that's I actually I've seen that movie and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a completely different visual style. It's almost like watercolors, hmm. um, but it is a very, uh, it's almost like a fairy tale sort of story. Um, but it's you know it's about a princess and who's. Buddha falls in love with her and there's reincarnated souls and there's spirits and there's three princes vying for her hand in marriage. So it's a much more uh, traditional folktale style. Very cool. And I actually, that's one of the things I did love about this music is that the composer is using not just Japanese influence, but most certainly uh most certainly world influence there is there is obviously some some european uh some like you know the the south side of france type stylings uh and there's just so much going into that sound that's not just traditional that you might hear in a in, in an anime there's just so much, and I love that about that because right. whenever I hear a composer, what I would really love to hear is, "Oh yeah, I combined like four different genres to make my own," and I think that's what this guy excels at. I definitely agree with you. So, as we close out this episode, is there anything anyone on the roundtable that would like to talk about something that we have not already discussed? Oh I- my god, there's so much. <laughs> I, I have an easy one, uh, and then I will I will defer to you, Nicole. Are any of you familiar with uh, the old legend of Baba Yaga? Oh yes, 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 yeah. So, that's where so, the the house yeah, with the chicken feet. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to think that that was the uh, the kind of the the influence for when that was first. And I first became aware of Baba Yaga years and years and years ago from playing Dungeons and Dragons. Because <laughs> Baba Yaga's hut was like a very cool thing that you know, in any good campaign, you had to fight that because it was it was just bad. <laughs> That's a, from a, a Russian folk tale, right? The Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga, it's, yeah. She's like an evil witch. Yes. Does this have she was also one of the characters in Fables. Yeah, she was a major character. In Fables. Yeah, big big character in Fables. Does this did the did that really right. bad film, The Baba Duke, take any influence from this? What do you mean the really bad film, The Babadook? What are you talking about? The Babadook is awful. <laughs> oh, I hate you right now. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, that's that sounds interesting. I don't know anything about that. Uh, David, is there anything as we close up this episode that you'd like to touch on? Uh, I, I really loved uh, Howell's whole thing going on with his magic. Uh, where he was very powerful, but he was very reckless. And so it was causing these very physical, very dangerous changes. You know, he didn't have a heart, so he didn't, he, he had a lot not restricting him internally. And uh, I really, you know, I'm, I, I would like to read the book just to see if that is expanded upon because I found that to be a very interesting uh, storyline. Yeah, Hell's a badass. 
Exactly. <laughs> that's that's one of the cool things about his character that's further accentuated by Christian Bale voicing him for me. Anyway, right? Uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a really nice vocal performance, especially with the um, when he he gets the the witch's curse um, in the runes, and it, it sort of burns itself into the table. And yeah. you, know, you can see his his hair is moving with the force of the magic going on, and he's reading it out. And then at, at the end, and he's like, "That can't be good for the table." Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you brought that quote up. That's such a cool scene. Uh, but then I also love, yeah, that that line. And then when he says, "But there's no point in living if I can't be beautiful," or something yes. like that. Yeah, oh, when he runs out of the bathroom and with the orange hair and he like bumbling into things and like screaming, I thought A, that's not Howell, or B, like this is some random guy, or B, he got like burned in the bathroom or something like that. Uh, I did not expect that to be him and to it just be he dyed that, his hair the wrong color. Vanity. <laughs> vanity, yeah. That that was one of the first points in the film where I was like, that's kind of stupid. Because it was such it was such a huge character shift. Like he went from being this this debonair spellcrafter who can waltz on the air, and he has this magnificent, you know, magical palace. And then he comes out screaming like a fourteen year old girl because his hair's a different color. And I was just like, what? Where did that come from? I don't know. I've met people who get freaked out when they're not in control. Um. But you know, it's he's, so abrupt. He's suave and debonair it's... when he's in control of the situation, and he's you know knows what's going on, and he knows he can handle it. But if something unexpected happens to him, that's that he didn't do intentionally, he flips out. I I just thought it was weird. It was weird. <laughs> it's very abrupt. Uh, it just he just bumbles out of the bathroom in the middle. You know you don't you do not expect it. Most certainly not. Uh, but yeah, and and also that was one of my little quips with him was that I understand that he's becoming matured by the war and becoming matured by Sophie and stuff. So uh, yeah, Sophie. But I didn't really see him grow up per se. Uh, from the point that he bumbles out of the bathroom complaining about his hair color and then turning into a blob and, you know, setting demons into the house, to the point at the very end of the film when he gets his heart back, I personally didn't see an immense amount of growth from him. And maybe that's just because I'm not gleaning what I should from the film because I've only seen it really just once. But uh, I didn't really see much of his character development. That's what, that's what I'm hoping that in reading the book, maybe there's going to be an expansion a little bit on that definitely well you know kind of i think it comes in a bit when uh sophie saves him at the palace and keeps him from uh battling with suleiman and they make their escape and he's realizes what she's done for him um and then you know near the end where the um where the house is being bombarded um the you know the the house in town that they're attached to is being bombarded and he's determined to stay instead of running from his problems he's staying and he's defending the people he loves and i mean i think that's a a big leap in maturity yeah that that's right that's that's very fair he does say to her when they're leaving the castle you know you gave me the courage to be able to do this uh, well and, and right. like like everything emotional growth is very much a process so Maybe the next time that something unfortunate happens to Hal, he'll just summon one smoke demon to destroy his house <laughs> instead, instead of, like of an 20. entire army. <laughs> That's maturity. That's growth. <laughs> I, it, it takes time. Yeah, I think the sequel to this should really just be like the domestic lifestyle of these two people uh, and just her trying to calm him down. <laughs> like, uh, someone drops a dish in the kitchen and you just see the smoke demons just start pouring in the, from the, the windows. shadows start creeping <laughs> on the walls. <laughs> uh, that was one of the good dishes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. I love it. Nicole, is there anything that you would like to briefly mention before we end the show? Oh, golly. Um, no, I mean, just, you know, again, uh, uh, just want to reiterate how much I love the vocal performances in here. Uh, Lauren Bacall as the Witch of the Waste, they were intimidated when they cast her. They were worried that when they explained that the character was a little bit despicable. And she apparently said, I was born to be despicable. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's, and it's just beautiful. And I, I kind of like, you know, Billy Crystal was obviously cast to do the, the big comic relief part, but I think he does some, some subtle things in here that in, in places like uh, when he talks about the, you know, when Howell's talking to him about the bombs that he witnessed and he's, um, what does he say? He says, I can't stand the fire and gunpowder. Those dopey guys have no manners. Yep. <laughs> and then think when he asks Sophie for something of hers, he's like, how about your eyes? You know, and he just kind of throws it out there casually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He's so, I mean, a I, I like it. I know it's a, it's a little bit bigger than everybody else's performance, but I kind of like it. You know, he's supposed to be a, a fire demon. He's not a human. He doesn't have to follow our standards of behavior. He he sounds like an old Jewish man from New York. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, you know, that's Billy Crystal. (laughs) Uh, I love him in the movie. He's probably one of of the redeeming qualities of it for me amongst many. Uh, But, Nicole, this is a film I safely say you would wholeheartedly recommend it, correct? Yes, I would. I would recommend it to everybody over multiple viewings. It's, you know, I find new rewarding things about it every time I watch it and it's just so rich there's always something new to look at a quick- so I mean this was the first viewing I think I've seen this I don't know probably like seven times now but this is the first viewing that I noticed in his bedroom um, when he's recuperating from summoning the uh, the the spirits of darkness to the house there's something in his room that's got a big eye in it that's moving and looking at things while they're talking. And this is the first time I noticed it. So, I mean, there's just amazing, especially the shots in his room. There's just amazing little things everywhere to look at. I didn't notice that. So. And, a, and a quick question I have for you is you did say you have a physical copy of this film. Is if yes. I, if I'm someone who really enjoyed this, which I am, and I would like yeah. to learn a little bit more about it, uh, if I was to eventually pick this up and on Blu-ray or something like that, are there any decent <laughs> special features or anything like that? Um, the special features that I have on mine are um, mostly about the the English language recording. Uh, they show a visit that Miyazaki made to Pixar Studios, um, and that's. That's really the majority of it. And then they, I have an, there's an entire second disc, which is the movie. You get the soundtrack to the movie and uh, what you see are the storyboards. So it's, it's the entire length of the movie. You see all the storyboards. Oh, that's really that cool. See, that's film. something that would be worth owning. Um, so I was curious if they did. I don't did. know if that's on the Blu-ray edition, but the Blu-ray edition I know is on sale on Amazon right now. So yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and uh, <laughs> it, I was actually curious about whether or not they had any sort of 10th anniversary or anything like that in in you know two years ago. It doesn't. Oh, then I don't know. It doesn't look like they did. That said. Uh, the Blu-ray does have that second disc as well for anyone who is curious, and that is on sale. Might not be when this episode comes out, but we've heard from Nicole. Nicole would highly recommend this film. Uh, David, is this a film you would recommend? Why or why not? Uh, absolutely. As as I said at the the top of the episode here, this is a film that I think uh, really has a magical quality to it. I think there's a lot to enjoy. Uh, the, the voice acting is strong. The characters are great. It's true, the story has some slip-ups, but I think that you will just viewers will get lost in, uh, in in sort of the magic of the visuals and the music, and we'll just have a good time with it. That's awesome. And uh, Norman, our guest of honor, is this a film? You mentioned briefly at the top of the program that you'd probably recommend it to anime fans, correct? I, I would recommend it to fans of anime. Well, and Fans of anime have already seen this film. I would I would recommend this to fans of animation mm. uh, if they were looking to kind of stretch beyond uh, the the Toy Stories and kind of the the those kind of Western animated movies. Someone who I was trying to sell uh, on the concept of anime for the first time, I think I would be more tempted to encourage them to watch Akira or something like that. So. I don't know that I'd start with that one. <laughs> oh no, but just just go 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 all in. Um, go big or go home, huh? 
Yes. So the, I, I will give it a, a, a recommendation with an asterisk. Yes. Very cool. And I would actually give a similar but slightly different recommendation to Normans as somebody who has been on this panel since day one and had not seen really any anime. And the first anime film I really watched was Akira. Uh, I'm not sure I would recommend going in on that. <laughs> That's where I went in on this show. And that was hella confusing. But that said, I would highly recommend coming in on this film. Actually, if you're like me and anime doesn't really appeal to you, maybe it never never has whether that be the way they tell their stories whether that be the way they do their art direction whatever it is if you have been a listener to this program who when we have talked about anime you haven't been particularly interested by it uh, or haven't been in the past this is something that i think would do a lot for you uh for me personally it really was just a compelling watch and that was not something i was expecting in any capacity uh, so I would wholeheartedly recommend this, especially to someone like myself who struggles to find uh, ground on which anime is entertaining to them. So, yeah, great film. I highly enjoyed it. Uh, to go around the table so everyone knows where we can find everybody, uh, Norman, I believe you are on Twitter, correct? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at NormanB258. Uh, you go there, you will see the the four tweets that I send every year. Uh, I'm not super active on Twitter, but if you have any kind of love or interest in the Back to the Future, uh, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Back to the Future, the podcast. We have a, a, a back catalog of uh, somewhere between 20 and 30 episodes that I think people would really enjoy. And I'll pop in here as future Brett, or I suppose current Brett now. Uh, looks like that podcast that Norman did, uh, Back to the Future of the Podcast, went strong for quite a long time after we recorded that. Their last episode was in 2020, and it really does sound like they have an awesome back catalog. A lot of cool stuff to check out. So be sure to go back and check it out if you enjoyed them on this program. Give him a shout on Twitter. That'd be kind of funny if he gets shout outs on Twitter for a podcast that he guested on gosh, five years ago now. So be sure to do that. But uh, very quickly, I'll wrap it up here in modern day saying, uh, find all of the links uh, for myself, Nicole, David on uh, Twitter, Facebook, everything, social.mgrpodcast.com. You can email the show, hi, hi at mgrpodcast.com. And a reminder that next week will be a return to normalcy. We're going to be watching Shin Godzilla, uh, which is an around the world pick for me. We'll see you then. 